As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? If I told you I invented this thing, you know, this magical machine that was self-replicating and you only needed light and water to construct it and it was localized into a thousand variants that work around the world, you'd be like, okay, like, this is the next trillion dollar company. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. Thank you for tuning in. I really do appreciate it. We have a great show for you today. Another double episode. There's a lot going on these days. Yeah, so first up, we have Yishan Wong, who is the former chief exec of Reddit. And before that, he was an early employee at PayPal, then engineering executive at Facebook back in its early days. So he's been around the block. And these days, he lives in Hawaii, obviously. And is doing something very non-Silicon Valley, which is planting trees. That's right, planting trees. But he is doing it in a kind of a Silicon Valley-ish type way. Um, His company is called Terraformation. And what he wants to do is basically catalyze the planting of a trillion trees, which he argues are very clearly the very best CO2 harvesters on the planet. So, obviously, one trillion is a lot. It's a big number. But he's kind of taking the techie blitz scaling handbook to this very real climate change problem. And it's just a really interesting idea once you kind of dig into it. And you know, he's not alone. There's more and more folks out here are turning their attentions to climate as not only an urgent issue that needs to be addressed, but also as you know, quite a big business opportunity. Um, and so there's a lot of startups, technology ideas. It's a really interesting time in that world. So we talk with Yashan about that. And then we bring on Gianni Satino, and I think you'll really enjoy this conversation. So Gianni, he's a 31-year-old tech entrepreneur, but that's not exactly why I wanted to have him on. Because there's another reason. He is part of the group that very recently spent $208,000 on an NFT, which was a video highlight of LeBron James. And my basic question was, why did you do this? And what's really interesting is that we get into his whole, um, his history of buying and selling digital stuff. And for me, what comes out is just a much clearer understanding of this mind shift, especially for younger generations of the kind of the value of digital things, of tangible real world stuff is fine, but it's not seen as having any more intrinsic value than a digital good, be it a collage or a basketball highlight or a crypto punk, whatever it may be. So... Following on from our conversation last week with Nikhil at Alchemy, this interview just peels back a few more layers of why blockchain and NFTs in particular are interesting and having a moment. So I think you'll really enjoy that. But first, let's get to Yishan Wong, the techie trying to plant a trillion trees and save the planet. It's not as crazy as it sounds. Here he is. So this is really interesting because one of the things I've I've determined to do this year, which is one of the reasons I'm talking to you, is like, it feels like climate change is just 
it's obviously a thing, but it feels like it's in a way that investors are starting to realize, like, actually, beyond the imperative for the planet, it's actually there's a real investment case here in a way that there hasn't been in a long time. And there was like the green tech bubble, which kind of came and went. But then this feels like different and more real. I don't know if you're finding that or if you've been out plowing your own furrow, so to speak. Um, we have found that. And, and we think there's a, there's like a fundamental change that is sort of underpins why that is the case. But what's the fundamental change? So in order to solve climate change, there's like a variety of possible solutions. And, you know, they sort of fall into two buckets, right? There's decarbonization of the grid and then there's carbon sequestration. But the nature of each of the many solutions in each of the buckets varies. And the main differentiator is whether or not the money you are spending is just like a cost that you spend to sort of deflect the problem or solve the problem versus whether or not it is an investment and you're going to get back value fundamentally, right? For, for example, before, you know, price advantage, advances in solar happened, transitioning to solar and certain other decarbonization actions were just a cost, right? You would just pay to like do something different. It was all heavily subsidized because I, before I covered tech, I covered energy and commodities for years and years. And I remember covering solar and it was so wildly subsidized and you're kind of thinking, oh, well, this is never going to make sense. And then the price dropped by like 90% in like five or seven years because China just industrialized it. But, but, but that's not the fundamental um, difference. The, the fundamental difference is that sometimes there's things that you do as a cost and other things where it's investment, like if you are able to reforest otherwise barren land, you are fundamentally creating value, right? Like if I, if I offered you the choice of an acre of barren desert yep. or an acre of lush forest, right? You would take the latter one because you know that's more valuable. So converting one to the other is a creation of value. And so putting money into that isn't just spending money. Um, like, like a better example of spending money is like, you know, one of the plans is like throw iron filings into the ocean to increase phytoplankton blooms. Right? Well, because I was, before we got on the call, I was looking at all the different kind of wild geoengineering kind of schemes to forestall climate change or reverse it and there's like pumping aerosols into the atmosphere to reflect sunlight which sounds like it's kind of trying to approximate what happens when a giant volcano erupts and yeah. kind of cools the earth for a bit but it, it all sounds like kind of off the wall right and and just like even even sort of taking away the off the wall part, yeah. you know, let, let's say all crazy ideas were equally crazy. <laughs> like, you know, flying specially designed airplanes and spraying aerosols is a cost, right? You're not going to get money from that. It doesn't create value. All you're doing is preventing the, you know, the problem from happening. Whereas if you are reforesting deserts or, you know, where forests used to be, yeah. You're spending money, but you're also creating value, right? You're solving the problem directly by sequestering carbon, but you're also creating value in that that land is now more valuable. And I think there are more solutions now that are of that nature. And so the entire investment landscape, in addition to the falling price of solar, which simply changes the economics, right, of many of the solutions, makes more of them investments rather than 
to use the term broadly, taxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I want to get to that question of value, but first, uh, we should probably just step back. We kind of just dove in in the middle of the pool and started swimming around. Um, um, so the company is called Terraformation. How long have you been doing it? Officially or unofficially? Both. Well, the, the company was incorporated as of January 1st of 2020. Okay. So we are a pandemic-first, remote-first organization. Love it. I've been, I've been doing work on things related to it since I think 2017. So can we go back because I think obviously your your route to this is interesting and also instructive. You know, ba- basically coming from the world of software, the internet, you ran Reddit for a while. First of all, are you glad you're not in that world anymore? Because it's, it's, uh, it's a snake pit out there in the social media world. It was a difficult world. I was exposed to, I think, an early microcosm of what later hit the broader social media landscape and the, I guess, American cultural milieu. When were you running it? Was it 2014? Uh, Yeah, I think 2012 to 2014. Right. A couple of years in there. And so when you say you were exposed to like the the kind of the forerunners of things that are happening writ large now, what what are you referring to specifically? You know the unique flavor of extremism yeah. that's happening these days? And uh, there's a thing that I call induced extremism, which is when one side sort of constructs a straw man of the other side. And that straw man doesn't exist. It's a true straw man. But by reacting to it so strongly, it actually results in the creation of that straw man. I don't know why, but the mm. other side then begins acting like that, you know, because there's, <laughs> there's some sort of like suggestion of that idea. Yeah. And, you know, it's, and, and so you have this really interesting, like induced extremism on both sides where they're, they're pushing each other further and further to the, I wouldn't even say like the further left or further right. It's just like sort of in like these weird, like insane angles, right? If you were to analyze the views that people have today compared to any other you know, political philosophy landscape of the past or even of other countries, they would just think that we're insane. Yes. Um, and, and these, you know, various insanities are somewhat induced. And I saw that happening, right, at, at Reddit. But because it was like, there was no historical analog for that. Yeah. You know, like in hindsight, you know, you could see, oh, all right, it's, it's like this, right? But when it was happening for the first time, it was just like kind of crazy. Was there one thing in particular that sticks with you? One kind of example of what you're talking about that kind of illustri- illustrative? No, that that's the thing. It's 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 a very gradual thing. There's no right. like one big break. It, it just these little gradual things that happen organically and then later just exploded across like the rest of the internet and all other social networking sites, which is more or less where American culture is sort of incubated and bred now. Yeah, totally. And I'm curious, and then I, I promise we're going to get to the more pressing matters of saving the planet. But do you think that's manageable? Like that, those kind of, for lack of a better term, the animal spirits that are induced and let to run wild on the internet. You know, Facebook has 3 billion people. I don't know how many people are on Reddit, but a lot. And as we saw with Wall Street bets, it can be quite powerful. I mean, is that just completely unmanageable? Is it... We just should we just be fatalistic about that? I, th- I think mankind goes through these periods of hysteria, and it, it sort of has to burn itself out. 
right? I, I, I don't say that in a fatalistic way. I say, you know, you, you can only be just like totally nutso for a certain amount of time until you sort of wear yourself out, right? As a person, but also just collectively. Yeah. So it, it'll take some time. I actually have a lot of faith in mankind. I'm a very pro-human person. Right. Um, and I think people will work it out. There's a lot of people who are just tired of it. And that actually acts as a dampening force because after a while, the induced extremism doesn't work as much, right? And so it just sort of... Well, it's like the QAnon, the QAnon thing, for example, like how many times can you, it's kind of the boy who cried wolf. How many times can you say the big thing is going to happen and then it doesn't happen and people are like, mm, is this actually a thing I should be following? Yeah, like everything on the internet eventually gets old and stale, <laughs> so, <laughs> which, you know, it's a very dull way to put it, but yeah, everything ends. So you quit there, you, were, you ran it for two years and uh, why'd you quit? I think the most compact answer is it got to be a little too much. (laughs) (laughs) Just exhausting. Yeah. You know, know, time for a change of pace, both in terms of other people try to solve problem and uh, just doing something else. Right. And so that was, you got to be the CEO of Reddit, but before that you were basically doing software, the Silicon Valley thing, basically startup life. Right. Yeah. And how many, did you do a lot of startups pre-Reddit? Um, I guess there were two major ones. And then, you know, the, the sort of minor projects that one tends to run when you're in Are you officially part of, because this is the other thing I read on the internet, you're part of the PayPal mafia. Is that a, is that a true statement? <laughs> uh, I'm always flattered when someone says that. But uh, first of all, there, there is no like official membership. There's not, you don't have a card? Yeah, it, it's it's not like it's like there's no mafia. They're all just legitimate businessmen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think the closest analogy would be like if in the Godfather film they had like the eight-year-old kid, you know, standing on the side of the of the street watching for when the police are going to come by. Oh, you were the guy. You were the corner boy. I'm like that kid. You were the like guy. A new grad. Right. You were the guy yeah. in the corner, just making sure the the fuzz. The looking, kid. Yeah. The kid that they paid like a quarter to to be the lookout. <laughs> okay, that's. I wasn't like right. one of the whatever. Right. <laughs> I don't know mafia terminology. So it's PayPal, and then the, what? That what was the other one you did pre Reddit. Um, uh, and then Facebook. Right. And what did you do at Facebook? Yeah. Engineering and engineering leadership. Right. You were there right when it was kind of very much up and to the right in terms of everything that was happening there. Uh, Yeah, yeah. It was sort of a crazy growth time. Right. So PayPal, Facebook, Reddit, you quit. And then do you just say, I need a change of pace. I'm moving to Hawaii. I had been visiting Hawaii for quite a while. Yeah. Um, So we just sort of started visiting Hawaii a bit more. Right. I, I, I didn't have a plan afterwards. I actually don't often, I, I'm not a person who plans my career. Yeah. Right? I, have, I have a friend from college and she had like a five year career plan. And I, didn't have I know plan. my, I my just, wife and I are kind of exact opposites. She has a, she has plans. I have no plans and it drives her crazy. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so you left in 2014 and then where, where do you live now? Is it the big Island? Yeah. I live on the big Island right now. Um, I, but, but I wouldn't really say that I specifically left. It was more that when you're early in your career, you sort of think that you're positioned to do certain things and you're qualified for certain jobs in the same vertical. Yeah. 
And after a while, you realize you can be good at something, but that doesn't mean that you lost your ability to learn other things really quickly. And so I found that there are a whole bunch of other things that I could learn and do. And so I'm trying to bring it back. Well, the reason I ask, because I wanted to get the kind of the background of your kind of your career, because on the face of it, terraformation is a super analog idea, like let's plant trees and save the planet, right? right? But you're obviously taking a different approach to this. And I was on your website and it was kind of talking about the marriage of like math with biology slash nature. And the idea is to plant or to help kind of catalyze the planting of a trillion trees, correct? Yep. For 3 billion acres of forest, which is somewhat more technically correct. Yeah. There was something you wrote that I wanted to kind of draw out because I think this kind of lays bare the gravity of what you're trying to do or how hard it is. You say a trillion trees, if we planted them serially one right after another, taking only a second to do so, it would take 31,000 years to plant. So we have like, what, a couple decades to sort ourselves out? Yep, yep. So what's, what's the plan? <laughs> the only way to do like a really, really big plan is to do parts of it in parallel. And so the feasibility of large plans depends in huge part on how parallelizable it is. And planting trees turns out to be extremely parallelizable. And it's actually really lucky we have a lot of humans. There's like over 7 billion of us. It's so in like the sort of plainest way to do it is if you were to divide a trillion trees into 7 billion people, that's 150 trees per person, okay. which is a totally doable number, especially if you're trying to plant them all in, say, the next 10 years. Mm -hmm. That's 15 trees per year, one or two trees a month per person. So like in the life of every human, 150 trees can totally be planted. And that's not necessarily to say that's how we're going to do it, right? Yeah. But that's a way of breaking it down and seeing what a trillion means and how it can be broken up into doable pieces. And that's really key in doing it. So I have two questions. Why trees? Or why this? And how did you end up from like the kind of crazy go-go world of Silicon Valley, you know, social media craziness to I'm going to, I'm getting into climate and I'm going to do it this way? So I've worked in technology for a long time. And... Once you work in technology, you, you sort of learn certain things, which is that technology is like the biggest problem with technology. <laughs> and, and it comes from, I think, the Greek word, like, I think I just, I just looked it up to make sure, like, techne, mm -hmm. which means art or craft, and then technologia, which is systematic treatment. And, and that refers more broadly to tools and methods, mm. right? The word technique as a similar route. So I don't think of technology as gadgets. Gadgets are a sort of narrow definition of what technology really is. Mm -hmm. It's more like the way of how you solve a problem. Uh, and, and so the way I solve a problem is generally the larger and more complex the problem is, the simplest solution is, is the only one that's really going to work. Yeah. Right? Because you're going to have to scale it a, a huge amount. Yeah. And so I kind of reformulated the problem, uh, reframed it in, this, in a certain way, which is 
you know, you have this huge problem. What is the cheapest per unit way to remove CO2 from the air? Because you can actually look at the problem as an atoms configuration problem. I'm not, I'm not sure if that phrase makes sense for everybody. It certainly does not to me, but my our listeners are, are pretty smart, but I don't know I don't know how many would would twig that one. Okay, so so there's a um, you know, if you think of like the atoms, everything is made of atoms. Yep. And you can sort of ask yourself, is there a configuration of those atoms such that scientists would say there is no problem with climate change? Yeah, yeah, right. And the answer is actually yes. The answer is just if the concentration of CO2 in the atmosphere were 280 parts per million instead of 415, then there would be no problem. So it's just all of those CO2 atoms that are in the air. They need to not be in the air. Yep. And so then you reframe the problem as what is the cheapest way yeah. to remove them? And then if, if you want to, and you know the total number that you need to remove, there's roughly 800 to 1,000 gigatons of CO2 that's extant since 1750. And then, and then you can say, okay, well, if it costs this much you know, per ton or this per molecule to remove, what's the cheapest way to do that? Because you want the cheapest solution. For sure. And, and then you want to know whether or not that total is something that we could actually pay for. Yeah. And this makes me think of like, again, going back to my days covering oil, you know, carbon capture and storage where, you know, you have these old salt caverns under the North Sea and you have to build a whole plant to like capture the CO2 and pump it into these underground caverns. And it's all wildly expensive and very experimental, for example. Right. And so it turns out that, that like trees are just the cheapest way to do that. Right. They're a, they're a better CCS plant. Right. Exactly. And... Right, like I think I wrote a thing online that was something like, if, if I told you I invented this thing, that you know this like, magical machine that was self-replicating, and you only needed light and water to construct it, and it was localized into a thousand variants that work around the world, um, it could be constructed and deployed by uh, low-skilled labor, and some of them produced organic food. Um, right, you'd be like, okay. Like, this is the next trillion dollar company. Totally. Right? Yeah, yeah. And the, the solution has actually been like staring us in the face. It's right there. It, and, and people sort of think, oh, well, okay, you're going to like create all these forests. Well, how are these going to work? Are they really going to work? And the truth is, we already have billions of acres of forest. Like, we have trillions of trees currently in operation. Right? This is actually <laughs> the strongest argument that any VC ever hears, which is, we already have billions of units deployed and in production, and they are already doing what we say they're going to yeah. do, right? These trillions of trees that we already have everywhere around the world, so we already know it works everywhere, currently sequester billions of tons of CO2 each year. Like, it's already happening. So it's kind of ridiculous to think that we can't grow more forests or that it's not going to work. Right. <laughs> it's, it is the solution that is working more than any other solution. And it also happens to be the cheapest one. The engineering or technology side of it is really just how do we organize humans and organizations to do this fast enough in this time frame. But how is this a business? In other words, this sounds like almost like something like and I'm sure you'll correct me here, but this sounds like something that you, like an NGO would do. Like, okay, we're just going to start 
trying to reforest here, there, and everywhere, we'll find some benefactor. We'll find Bill Gates. He's very worried about climate change. Get him to give us, you know, a bunch of billions of dollars, and we'll just go do that because it's not clear how this would become a an economically remunerative enterprise. Wouldn't it, though? I don't know. So the thing that I mentioned earlier is it is fundamentally a creation of value. If I take barren, unproductive desert and I change it into a thriving forest, like everyone will agree that the latter is more valuable. But who pays for that? Well, the funny thing is like the reason why it's not a market is because every single acre that you would convert to forest or regrow into forest is different. So Mm. the real problem is not that there's value and not that it can't be monetized, but that everyone is different. And so it's different, difficult to characterize as a revenue stream and a market with fungible goods. However, um, there's this fascinating thing about mortgages. This is a completely unrelated topic. Yeah, go for it. Every single mortgage is different. Yep. People don't realize it's actually like every single mortgage product is different because every house is different. Even when you have identical houses, the borrower is different. So the revenue and the risk associated with each mortgage is different and difficult to characterize. And in fact, near the beginning of the last century, this was the problem with the mortgage and housing market in the US, Mm. which was that very few people owned houses because it's very hard to get a mortgage. Yeah. You had to go to the bank and convince the banker of your individual credit worthiness. Yeah. Um, however, in the you know in the post-war post World War II era, the U.S. government wanted wanted to increase the number of homeowners um, for different reasons, and mostly like more homeowners equals more social stability, right? And so they did a whole bunch of things to make it easier to get mortgages and. Because the number of mortgages then went up very quickly, you were able to average out the revenue and the risk. And then private industry saw this in large in larger numbers and began funding it. And now we have like a thriving mortgage industry that works, right? It's like people think, oh, whoa, there's like a big mortgage meltdown. But that's actually an example of how robust it is. Like we could have an enormous you know, meltdown in the mortgage industry and it's still going, right? People still take out mortgages and, you know, have houses. So the thesis is this. We do know that forest projects are value creating. Um, they generate revenue. People, like, I think technologists like to think in terms of carbon credits, but I actually think that that's not the right direction to go in. I think it's more important to recognize that forests produce tangible goods like agroforestry, silvopasture, silviculture, where we use uh, solar desal, we have residual utility output. There's all these products that benefit you know, the local economy, but it, it's different based on the species and the local economy. Right. Well, you say sil- silviculture? Yeah, silviculture is roughly like sustainable timber. Okay. And then silvopasture is actually conversion of grazing land, which is slightly different. Right. And we can go into that one. That's a big topic that I'd love to talk about. And we feel that like because the world needs a lot of forests fast, we believe that if we can do things that accelerate the growing of forests, both through you know technological assistance, which just makes everything faster and cheaper, which improves you know profit margins, and 
the market is now behind it, right? You have, there, there's no other program or thing that 160 governments across the world all favor. Like they do for reforestation, for example. Yeah, like tree planting, reforestation, or you know, afforestation programs exist in at least 160 governments around the world. Right. Like, what else is that popular? Right. And it's something that millions or billions of people want. Right. There's an enormous worldwide demand for this and understanding for why it's important on a macro scale. So we believe that it's not just reforestation, but rather the acceleration of the rate and number of forestry projects. And once we have many of them, then in aggregate, they're going to be able to get funding and you can then characterize the revenue and the risk from all of those and then it become like a, a viable investment product. That brings up a number of questions, but one is you, you mentioned kind of marrying this with technology. So what do you mean by that? Because I think you guys have already done like a, I don't know if you'd call it a pilot project or it's more than that, but like if you could explain what you guys did there because I think that would kind of illuminate, you know, how you're approaching this. There, there's sort of like a, Small answer to this and a big answer to this. So I'll give you the small answer, which is not the major one, but forestry is not, has not traditionally been, you know, like cool or sexy. Yeah. And as a result, there hasn't been much focus in developing technology or technology-based tools for it. So there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. Um, if you just take a team of really good engineers, designers, and you, and you pair them with very experienced foresters, they can tell you, hey, if I had a tool or an app that did this, I would just be able to work 50 50% faster. Right? And then you produce that and it's not a very hard app to produce. Like we're doing things like that. Right. So it's just across the board we can we can create like efficiency improvements and cost improvements. So we have like machine learning and robotics people and just plain apps, app designers. Yeah. Right. Just improving efficiency and adding automation and everything. Okay. That's the small answer. The big answer is actually that I don't think techs, you know, the main contribution that Silicon Valley or tech, since Silicon Valley is kind of moving. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> I don't think that tech's main contribution to climate change will ultimately come in the form of a new gadget or, you know, a new magical technology. Many people imagine that that's what it's going to be. Yeah. I don't actually think that that's what it's going to be. I think tech's main contribution is going to be the practice of scalability. I think that tech has developed um, a unique skill of over the past 15, 20 years of taking small scale things that work and scaling them a billion fold in the span of a decade or two, right? Like all of these internet companies that appeared out of nowhere, they did not appear magically. They appeared because the people in them scaled them and it was really hard like every year you have to do 10 times more than what you did last year yeah. some metric and you reconfigure all of your internal processes all the way you manage projects all the ways you do everything inside that company every year and you do it again the next year right that mode of thinking and those practices i think it's like there's books about it i think reed hoffman wrote one blitz, like blitz, blitz scaling yeah yeah and that practice is largely unfamiliar to the rest of the world. But in order to solve climate change in the time frame we have left, we basically have to take every single reforestation project and organization, um, and in fact, every climate tech group and every climate tech project 
actually also needs to do this. If you look at the numbers, everyone has to do 10 times as much next year as they did this year. Right. And it has to do it again <laughs> for the next decade. That will get us to a solution that's on the scale of the problem that we're trying to solve. And just to level set, the solution you're talking about specifically is presumably a certain CO2 level or not going past right. a certain CO2 level. Well, there's actually two things. One is a sufficiently large decarbonization of the grid, which, which is an area that many, many people are working in and, and is subject to the same scaling uh, you know, need. Right? Yeah. But that's not the one that I'm currently focused on. I am focused on carbon drawdown and needing to draw down enough carbon in enough time using the cheapest possible method. Putting CO2, basically atmospheric CO2, effectively into reverse is the idea. Right. Like removing it out of the atmosphere, like the speed at which we have to do that. Right. And so what what have you done in Hawaii? We have done, I think, like two things. One is showing that we can accelerate reforestation projects just by thinking this way and just by developing technology. The other is there's actually a scalability bottleneck to the planting of a trillion trees. So part of scalability is actually anticipating and removing bottlenecks. Yep. Um, th this is actually a thing that's, uh, this, this concept is often not even a thing that people realize, which is you can do 10 times as much of what you're doing today, you know, but if you're doing like 100 or 1,000 or 10,000, you're going to run into bottlenecks that are not just about you do a bit more, right? right. You just suddenly, your supply chain breaks, right? Or like, you, you, you know, something that you didn't think was a bottleneck ends up, you know, capping. Right? There's, there's always a limit to every part that you have. Yeah. So there is a scalability bottleneck to planting a trillion trees, and that is land availability. The probably definitive scientific consensus right now is the 2019 paper by the Crowther Lab out of East Zurich, where they scanned the entire earth mm. and said, hey, if we reforest all of the places we could, where we could plant forests, we would probably be able to draw down, we'd probably be able to solve about 30% of the problem. And they said, this is the best solution to climate change we have. So, so, okay, then everyone yelled at them because that's like a very bold claim for scientists to ever make. Um, but it was basically true. And, you know, the, the illogical reaction of most people to that was to say, oh, that'll only solve 30% of the problem? Then forget it, right? Which is absurd. The logical thing is, if you can solve 30% of the problem, do it now. <laughs> However... It turns out you can extend that problem, that 30% that to get to 100%, which is you can do it by restoring deserts to forests. And those are things that there have been projects that have successfully restored deserts to forests over the past few decades. And presumably um, this is land that not that long ago was not desert, but it was degraded, I would guess, through cattle grazing or clear cutting or something kind of dramatic that altered the landscape. Yes. In fact, in many, many cases, current desertified land was at some point in the past forest. Right. And, and, and that's often not taken into account when people do surveys of land. But, you know, for the more recently deforested stuff, like ethnobotanists can tell you, right? There's even like a seed bank in the ground. Yeah. And then other fossil data and just like other fields of science can tell you, right? The Sahara used to be a desert. Right? You mean <laughs> a forest. Or, sorry, yeah, the Sahara, Sahara used to be yeah, a forest. Yeah. 
So forests can exist there, and you can reforest deserts. The rate-limiting factor is actually availability of fresh water. And just to be clear, you're not talking about reforesting the Sahara? Not necessarily, but there are other groups who are essentially doing something like that. You, you can. That seems wild. <laughs> well, I mean, solving climate change is, is wild. Everything is wild. <laughs> right. But so you're focusing on... I'm, I'm saying that we can get the land necessary hmm. to plant a trillion trees, and we can provide enough water and it turns out that what is needed is solar desalination because there is a freshwater availability problem. Yeah. However, the only other source of fresh water is via desalination, which was previously too expensive. Right. Hence, the solar cost means it can you can do it for cheap now. Cheaper. Right. Exactly. The solar cost has, in fact, fallen to a point as of 2018 such that the world can now afford to produce enough water to irrigate 3 billion acres or a trillion trees worth of new forest. And there's enough land to do this. So presumably all of this land is near the coast? It doesn't actually have to be. The land that's near the coast is easy, but there's actually two solutions to that. So I'll I'll tell you the the fundamental one, which is kind of funny. So currently all fresh water comes from mountains. Yeah. The water cycles basically, you know, water evaporates, goes into clouds, comes down in mountains, becomes snow, comes down in streams and rivers, and we dam it up. And we actually have an enormous amount of infrastructure and we go to an enormous expense to route that water all the way down from the mountains across all our land and nearly to the sea. Yeah. Because over 50% of the world's population actually lives near the coast. And this is kind of crazy because they live right next to the ocean which is salty, and so they can't drink it. And so we route fresh water all the way from the mountains down to the sea. Right. Now, if we magically invented a method to create fresh water right out of the sea, A, you'd be able to, you would be able to like fulfill that demand for all that water near the sea. Yeah. Right? Um, it wouldn't necessarily be the forests that you're reforesting, but currently all the fresh water is being used right there then you no longer have to take all of that water from the mountains. It can remain further inland. So you can divert it to new forest projects, for example. Exactly. In, in fact, in, in some cases, you could just stop taking that water and it would you know, automatically begin, like the water would remain further inland and it would reverse desertification in certain regions. And the proportions are roughly match up. The world uses about... 4 trillion cubic meters of water a year. And the amount that we would need to irrigate all of these, all of this desert. If, if we were to do all through reforcing desert, which we don't need to because as the Crawford Lab found, you know, one third of it can be done in areas that already have enough rainfall. Right. But if, if in the worst case scenario, no one allowed us to use that land and we have to do it all with deserts, we would need 3 trillion cubic meters. So the numbers roughly match up. Right. Now, there's, there's another thing, which is we can actually pump water inland, and it wouldn't actually be that expensive because. So you're familiar with the solar intermittency issue? Yes. Sometimes it's not sunny. Right. Exactly. <laughs> Fancy <laughs> phrase for sometimes the sun's not around. Right. Exactly. So the problem with the solar transition in general is that if you want to convert all of residential commercial usage to solar, you have to deal with the sun's not out all the time issue, 
So then you have to like store the power at night in batteries. And batteries currently, the cost is coming down rapidly, but they're still relatively expensive compared to solar panels. And that makes the economics not quite there yet. Yeah. However, things like desalination and water pumping can be done during the daytime, mm. only when the sun is out. And that, that makes the economics way, way, way better and allows us to leapfrog that solar transition years ahead of the residential and commercial ones. So you can pump water inland, or it's, it's actually it's actually not horizontal distance. That's the cost. It's really the, the height. Vertical, the yeah. Water. Yeah, pumping, pumping water uphill. Yeah, so you, you just pump it to an intermediate tank during the day and you store it in the tank, right? And then at night, you don't pump. Right. right? So it works. Um, so it's actually not that cheap or not that expensive. And in fact, will get continually cheaper as solar prices continue. So we can even pump the water inland, but I think in many cases, we don't have to. We just have to stop taking it from the mountain and just producing it at the sea. So so have you built a solar desal plant? Because I, the reason I ask is because I know that this it's a technology that is notoriously energy hungry and very expensive. And, you know, I went to school in Santa Barbara and they famously had this desal plant that they started building during one drought and then stopped once the drought passed because this is just too expensive and it couldn't be justified. And then another drought happened. They're like, all right, let's finish this plant. <laughs> you know, and it's like, because it's just so expensive to run because of the energy. Well, um, it was very expensive to run because primarily because of the energy. And by the way, the cost is dominated, uh, maybe like 60 to 80% of the whole thing is dominated by the energy production cost. Yeah, and so so previously the only way it would work is if you used really cheap fossil fuels. Yeah, um, and that, that's why it was like really pop. It's really popular in the Middle East because the price of water is high, and the price of fossil fuels is relatively cheap. But you can't do that if you're trying to like reduce emissions and you know save the planet, etc. Right. <laughs> um, however, it is precisely because the cost of solar has dropped so much that it is now relatively economical. I mean, I would still call it expensive. We actually built the world's largest fully off-grid, 100% solar-powered desalination facility out here in Hawaii. And I paid for it myself. And it was, you know, I would say that it was costly. <laughs> However, in the context of what it can produce, it was affordable. And that, that's it's kind of a, right, it's like, you know, it's like, like that Star Trek Four scene where, you know, it says, I'm, I'll give you $100 for it. And he asks, like, is that a lot of money? Right. And it's like, well, the answer that question, right? It was, it was a lot of money, but it was not a prohibitively large amount of money. And most importantly, at scale, it's affordable. Right. By the way, you're the first guest on this podcast in nearly three years who's ever referenced Star Trek Four, Not just Star Trek, but Star Trek Four specifically. So <laughs> oh, props to you. That's <laughs> You're going down in the... <laughs> You're going down in the annals. Um, but so, and not like I know what, what a, I don't know like the volumes of a big desal versus a small desal, but what is that plant able to produce on a daily basis? I mean, I'm trying to like come up with some sort of synthetic units yeah. and make it. It's, I, I, let's say a plant that, where the desal equipment fits inside half of a garage. Yep. And the solar panels take up less than a half to a third of an acre. I can't measure it exactly. It's a regular shape. Produces enough fresh water 
to irrigate a new forest of between 50 to 150 acres. And that's a really big range, I know, because we kind of over, we engineered it for 50, realized we over-engineered it, and then our water estimates turn out to be way lower than we think right. by like 3x. So we might be able to get to 150. Right. But it's something like that. So, so you get like a, a more than 1 to 50 land usage ratio, you have a little patch of solar panels, and then 50 acres worth of new forest. So that's, that's sort of a scale thing. Gotcha. I mean, it kind of boggles the mind that all of the the things you have to kind of get going in the right direction for this to work. So where are you as, I mean, we started out, you're talking about you're raising money. And again, we're, I'm out here in Silicon Valley and, you know, it's the land. Of, I think you actually have to, be, I can't actually say that I'm raising money. I think there's some sort of general solicitation. Got you. Got you. <laughs> we have raised we have closed a round of funding you have yeah we've closed a round of funding voiceover describes what's happening on your iphone screen voiceover on settings so you can navigate it just by listening books contacts calendar double tap to open breakfast with anna from 10 to 11 and get on with your day Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Was that hard? Because I guess that gets to, because last year when we were in the midst of the fires and it was like Mad Max beyond Thunderdome out here, it was super weird and the sky was orange and nobody could go outside. We did a piece looking at, you know, Silicon Valley has spent years investing in software companies because as you referred to, it's like, it's kind of, infinitely scalable and scalable so quickly and it's such low cost and it's like created these massive businesses but climate change is much harder it's physical infrastructure it's governments it's local communities it's all of that stuff and it seemed to me that you know venture capitalists kind of weren't interested or just couldn't figure out a way like okay we're actually going to make money here so what, how was how has that process been of actually talking to investors? And are you talking to the typical investors out here? Or is it a different type of money that's looking at this stuff? Uh, I'm, I, I wouldn't say it's easy, but it's been surprisingly easy. Right. That's, that makes sense. This is one of those like, it's like is, it, is, is, it, is that thing expensive? It's like, well. Star Trek Four. It's, it's classic scene. Yeah, like I wouldn't call it cheap, <laughs> but it's not prohibitively expensive. Yeah. It's been it has been a major amount of effort, but it's been easier than I thought. The round that we closed, uh, I raised without a PowerPoint deck. I actually wrote a Medium article outlining that this solution was possible and then told people I was starting a company to make it happen. Uh, and we were able to raise, uh, well, we closed a, a $5 million round. Right. Um, wow. So so, so that, that was like, I guess you'd say easier than I thought. I mean, it happened during the pandemic, yeah. which I thought would make things impossible, but it worked, right? <laughs> Maybe people sat at home and thought about solving big problems. Right, right. There was a lot of big problems to <laughs> uh, think about. Yeah. I, I would say that what I see in Silicon Valley is that a very large number of people, like really good people, are focusing on climate because it's not – to a lot of people working in technology and, and working in technology is not about – Gadgets. To many people, it's about solving problems. They like solving problems. They, you know, have a job where they're solving problems. And climate is a really big problem that a lot of people want to see solved. Yeah. And so I, I'm actually seeing a huge migration of really talented people 
and uh, investors moving in this direction. And yeah, I will say that like, you know, if you have like your purely mercenary IRR focused investor, you know, they're not like super into it. You know, you can still make a lot of money fracking. But, and then on the other end, there's like philanthropists, all right? And, and in the middle, you actually have like impact investors who are investing in order to get a certain outcome. And, you know, what they want is they want to at least come out positive. Yeah. Right. They don't want to optimize for IRR. They just don't want you to lose your money. And if you make a return and you also solve a problem, they're pretty happy. Um, so there's a lot of investors in that middle area. And those are mostly the ones we're talking about. And is the idea that you would almost kind of sell the solution as like a kit? Like here's your reforestation package, you know, local like businessman in Bangladesh? Actually, yes. So we have worked out... Um, solutions and kits and services all along the entire life cycle of growing a forest from seed to, you know, post-growth care and monitoring verification. Recently, I talked to a businessman technologist who took a look at everything we're doing and said, hey, you're a forest as a service. Oh, God. Oh, God. And, and, (laughs) you know, in tech, maybe that may be a little cliche, but after thinking about it, you know, while I decided... To embrace that, because I think it's true. Right. Um, we can say to anyone, if you have land or if you have money, you know, or any combination of the things needed to make a forest, we can give you, we can partner with you and give you the rest of it and help you grow a forest as a service. And so, and then again, just on the business, so they would, if it's forest as a service, presumably they pay you some kind of fee, monthly fee or something for the access to this whole package. And on their end, they get the benefits of having 50 acres of new forest. And maybe that brings in animals. Maybe it produces sustainable timber. Maybe it improves. I mean, I'm just trying to figure out what they... It's, it's different for everyone. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's hard to say, you know, for the canonical person, because there isn't really a canonical person. But in all cases, you know, life is the source of all value and there is more life there. Mm. Right? It's, it's actually insane how much life will grow yeah. once you start adding water to a dry place. So the value that the landholder or the people who are working that land derive from that is sort of an ongoing long-term revenue stream. And, you know, we're open to all sorts of arrangements, whether that's at one time or, you know, rev share or something like that. Right. But you're, it, it's going to require, at least until people can kind of see the possibilities here, it's going to require some leaps of faith, no? To be like, build a forest, it'll work out. Trust us. Well, it will, except that we can also point to object examples where it's already working because we can simply point to existing forests and people can look at them and see, oh, yes, that is valuable. Right. We've got 4 billion acres, or sorry, 9.8 billion acres, roughly, of existing forests that we can point to and say, compare this to your land. The problem is, though, that it feels like a lot of that value is extractive. And I'm thinking, of course, about like the Amazon, for example. Like, you know, let's just clear cut the hell out of this, take all this, you know, valuable wood and like put some cows there, whatever. But just like, let's raise it to the ground and extract our value. I I think that's been like, yeah, the the old way that it was done for centuries. Mm. But there are both examples both old and new, where that does not have to be the case. And, and, and in fact, sustainable value is created, right? Like extractive use of land 
is a feature of the last few hundred years of, you know, Western land usage. Yeah. <laughs> and there are many, many indigenous groups around the world, both now and in the past, right, that practiced sustainable land management techniques, right, and drew resources from the land in, in a sustainable way. We're learning more and more about all of those techniques every day. And at the same time, we are, you know, some, in collaboration with those groups or people who represent those groups now, today, right, their descendants, um, we're also learning about many, many ways of using the land and deriving value from it in not just a sustainable, but also a regenerative way, right, that makes the land, like the soil, richer over time, right, rather than depleting it over time. So... It's actually kind of nice because, you know, trying to convert something is sometimes a little hard, right? You gotta like break old habits. But if you're starting from scratch with a new forest, you can just build that in right from the beginning, right? So right, right from the start, you can say, okay, this is gonna last in perpetuity, right? It's gonna generate, you can project how much revenue it's going to generate because you have billions of acres of existing models and lots and lots of cultures that have done this and projects that you can point to. And, you know, you have all these models available. Well, I guess that's that's what's really interesting. It does, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it feels like part of this project is banking on or hoping to inspire a kind of a a kind of seeing the light moment broadly, because it, there are absolutely, you know, it feels like most indigenous cultures respect the land and live in harmony with it, but they're not the dominant forces in the world who have kind of ripped everything out and paved it over and done all the kind of stuff that's got us into this, you know, Western civilization that has got us to this point now. So to kind of see the land in and of itself as valuable, just like in its natural state, we can kind of be more symbiotic with it. That feels to me almost like you need to have people to kind of change their chip, but maybe that's already happening because of climate change. In other words, like, perhaps you are kind of swimming with a tide that is going to start going your direction. Yes. We believe there's a lot of convergent, both physical and cultural forces that are guiding people towards this conclusion. And that's also why we feel it can be a viable business now. Right. I mean, as early as I think the first papers talking about global reforestation as a solution to, or mass reforestation as a solution to yeah, back then it was called the CO2 problem. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like appeared in papers in like 1988 or 1991, depending on which one you're citing. So this has been thought of, right? But people didn't really think about that as much. But now there's a lot of, a lot of convergent thought, right? That's, that's sort of moving in this direction. And, and, and you're right. I, I feel that that's, that's why we're going to get there. We have to get there. Right. I actually believe that this is inevitable. I'm just trying to make it happen faster because... A year fat getting there a year faster is one less year of pain. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. And biblical weather events. Yeah, I hope it doesn't get that bad, but yeah. that's why we're working as fast as we can. And then, uh, and then, lastly, just in terms of like again, Silicon Valley speak, your minimal viable product, your MVP, is that this project that you did that are have doing or doing in Hawaii? And could you just briefly explain what that project is? Uh, yeah. So we have a plot of land in Hawaii that's 50 acres. It is on the most desertified part of Hawaii, specifically on the Big Island. I don't, I don't know if everyone knows the geography of you know, Hawaii's a bunch of islands. Yeah. The largest one has a corner that is basically desert, but it was not always desert. It 
three or 400 years ago, it was all sandalwood forest from the mountain to the shore. And then for various, uh, you know, economic reasons, all of that sandalwood was cut down. Right. It was very, very valuable. Um, so it was cut down. Every single last stand of sandalwood was actually cut down. And the funny thing about biomes is that forests are self-sustaining and deserts are self-sustaining. And what that means is if you cut down all the trees and then you graze animals on it, so the animals like eat the tender young shoots, the forest will not regenerate itself. The area will dry out and become desert. That's self-sustaining. Right. But if you bring back a forest and you irrigate it for long enough such that the forest is able to take hold, trees hold water, they cool the air, and that changes the microclimate, and it brings back the rain. Um, we already actually see this on the bordering parts of the forest on the island that still border that desert. When you, There have been projects to extend those forests, and the rains, in fact, move right. further down to where the forest is. And so what we found with this project is, first, we built this um, solar desalination plant literally in the middle of the desert. I didn't mean to do this, but it turns out it was actually right in the exact middle of that. Right. The, the driest possible part where, you know, no power grid. And we actually found that as soon as we started just splashing water around, because like before we got it all up and running, there's just like kind of water, you know, dripping. Yeah. That that biome is still there. It's still in the sand. And there's a seed bank. The way my head of forestry puts it is there's a seed bank in the sand because these native flowers and plants, which did not appear anywhere in that area, started sprouting. Right. At first I thought there were weeds. Um, and she was like, no, no, that's a very rare like native flower. Um, and it's nowhere here. And, you know, and it's just because now that there's water, the entire original ecology is still there and is returning. Like now that we're, I think we've put down something like, 3,000 plants in about five months. Mm -hmm. um, that's, actually, that's at the rate of about 5x a normal reforestation project. So we're already like accelerating. And just in doing that, there are new species of birds returning, new species of insects, which you know, kind of sucks. Yeah, yeah. There. <laughs> but life attracts life. Yeah, yeah. And now that there's water, you know, all, those, all, all that nature was there. It was always there. Um, and it's water is the limiting factor. Once you return water to the region, so it's all coming back, which you know, is like, and so, so the, the postscript to that is basically, it's very hard to build things in Hawaii. It's, a, it's just one of the hardest places to build, you know, in general. The winds at that area are very, very high. Um, and so we figure if we can do that there, we can do it anywhere in the world. Right. And then just lastly, is there perhaps it would be, most appropriate comparing your time, I don't know, at Facebook because it grew, grew so fast, but is there any analogous kind of experience or dynamics that you draw from your kind of time back on this side of the pond, so to speak, with what you're doing now? Oh, um, <laughs> okay, here's like a weird one. Okay. So there was this culture for a while. It's, it's still like, you know, it was a culture that developed in the mid-aughts which is called like the engineer led, the idea of the engineer led company. Yes. Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. Facebook was, was one of the, you know, greatest early examples. Right. And, and but they also drew examples from like, you know, Microsoft, Google, right. And, and they would also point to like failing tech giants that were run by MBAs. Yeah. Like, you know, Paul Graham, Joel Spolsky talked about this. If you want to build a tech company, you can't have it run by a business person. It has to be run by 
a technologist, an engineer, yeah. right? Because they understand specifics of how to do this. It's, it's, so, so that became like the new standard in Silicon Valley, engineer-led company, technical founders, right? That's very important. I feel like maybe that culture has gone a little bit overboard, you know, in the last few years. But it was like one of those big shifts. And I do think it was important and is a key part of, you know, the, the, the new success of modern Silicon Valley. Yeah. In building this company, we have realized that there is another shift, which is we cannot come in as tech and try to solve this problem. I see a lot of like climate companies that are very, very tech oriented. Um, and so our company is built a little differently, which is we have to find this new thing called the forestry led company. Our head of forestry is the major strategic voice in, you know, all the decisions that we make. And although we've been very successful in hiring very, very good tech people, I always make this clear when they join, right? That they have, many of them have come from this, you know, engineer led, technologist led culture. And we say, this is not that, this is a forestry led company. Um, our head of forestry, you know, has the final say on all these decisions, right? right? Because there are all these like, just, just like with tech companies, there are all these like little nitty gritty details that are going to trip you up yeah. unless you really know that field, right? And it's like, it's already been like a couple dozen times where a head of forestry has said something like, no, 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 you can't do it this way. This thing will like trip you up, yeah. right? And your forest will die, right? And so I, I tell all the technologists who join, like, no, this is different. This is a forestry-led company. We are here as technologists to serve. Like we are, we are putting our talents in the service of right. accelerating and promoting forestry and making it more effective and efficient, right? But we're putting our talents to work for this mission and it's, it's a forestry like one. So I guess that's one similarity and difference. How do people take that? A lot of our tech people are very, I guess, I guess we call them like very secure. Many of them don't have anything left to prove. There's not much ego. And so they're actually very glad to do There's like, yes. Right. right. <laughs> I, I'm putting my talents in service of a greater mission. Right. Right. Forestry is the new thing. So, right. I mean, there's obviously some self-selection going on, right? Yeah, of course. So of course. Of course. Who are attracted to us are like, yes. And how many people are you guys now? Um, we're something like 50 people or so. Oh, wow. Um, we're hiring rapidly. And you've been funding this up until the fundraising by yourself? Um, yeah, I, I built the solar diesel thing myself. It started out as kind of a personal project. What do you mean you built it? You built it, you're like, with your hands? No, I, I paid for it. And, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, a very good friend of mine oversaw the general construction of it. Got you. So, yeah, like, I, I, I paid for it, made one particular very expensive mistake, which I hope will serve. That lesson will hopefully save the world billions of dollars, but right, right, right. going for the team there. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, and then, and then it's been, uh, we, we closed a round of funding uh, last year. Got you. Got you. Yeah. Or raised a round of funding last year. Right. Well, look, that's obviously a huge problem you're trying to solve. It's both the most simple approach, but also super complicated. It is the most simplest approach and is super complicated, but... What many people do not realize is that every other approach is actually more complicated. Every approach to solving a huge problem is going to require some, you know, multiple phases. There are early phases that have to do with getting the unit thing working. The proof the of concept. Yeah, the, exactly. The research proof of concept. Then the 
productization, the commercialization, turn into a product. And then if you want to scale it to billions, you have to do the scaling. And that by itself is an enormous undertaking. It's the creation of entirely new supply chains, uh, matching, manufacturing, uh, you know, adjacent businesses, all of these things. What I think most people do not realize is that every single climate solution is going to need to go through those phases. Mm. Many people get excited about a new proof of concept in a lab and forget that that thing is also going to need to be productized and scaled to billions, yeah. um, which are additional non-trivial steps. The advantage to forestry is, although it looks like it's going to be really hard to scale it, our advantage is, in fact, that we already have the proof of concept. We know that trees work. We know that they're product types. Um, solar and diesel are uh, decades-old technologies, right? They, 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 commodity manufacturers compete on basic price, right? Yep. The only part that we have that for, reforestation has to do is the scaling part. Yeah. Right. And people look at that and they say, "Oh my God, it's incredibly hard." Yeah. And and it is. <laughs> it's just that they're forgetting that every other solution also has to do that. But they haven't even done the proof of concept and the commercialization yet. We've already got those parts done. Have you talked to Bill Gates about this or Breakthrough Energy Ventures, you know, the thing he funds? <laughs> um, I think Bill Gates is funding a bunch of decarbonization technologies that are really valuable. And I'd like him to just focus on that part and we'll take care of this part. So I, I, don't, I don't feel the need to convince every big player. It, it's sort of like, I, I'm actually pretty glad that there are these other big players that are focused on other things because it's really going to be like a meet in the middle thing. Yeah. Right. Because if, if they reduce emissions by 50%, that's fewer trees that I have to plant. Yeah. So <laughs> the, the rest of the world has to plant, right? So I don't have to convince everyone. And then just, uh, I keep saying lastly, but I do have one more question. Just the, the trillion tree number, presumably that is a calculation. That's just not, let me pluck a big giant number out of the sky. Uh, cor- correct. It's, it's, well, it's, it's near the likely calculated number rounded to a phrase that rolls off the tongue easily. The way the, the truth is it's not actually a trillion trees. It's actually not trees at all. The, the, the real thing is diverse native forest ecosystems. Right. It is actually the real unit. Acres of or hectares of. Yeah, yeah. right. Like acres are three billion acres of diverse native forest ecosystems. Um, and native species of trees anchor those right. ecosystems. Right, right, And then, so it's sort of, but you can't say like three billion acres of native, diverse native, right? It's, it doesn't, like a, tr- a trillion trees is roughly 300 trees per acre. Right. And that's, and that's based on how much they, how much carbon they extract from the atmosphere. Right, exactly. Got you. Well, onward, I'll let you get back to planting. This is an, Thank you. things are, things are <laughs> urgent. But thank you again uh, for your time. I really appreciate it. You too. Thank you. All right. So that was my conversation with Yashan Wong. I hope you guys enjoyed that. And now moving from saving the planet to buying digital stuff for lots and lots and lots of money. This is my conversation now with Gianni Satino, co-founder of Hot Streak Fantasy and one of the buyers of the $200,000 LeBron James highlight where he's just dunking all over somebody's face so anyway we'll get to that right now 
like I said, we'd kind of been diving into this world of NFTs and I thought your kind of involvement here is just really illustrative of kind of what's happening, especially for folks who just are like scratching their heads and being like, what? I, I don't understand what's happening. You know, why people are paying these crazy amounts of money for something that's just digital. I can't touch it. I can't, you know, whatever it may be. So when did you first start buying digital stuff? So I think um, when we spoke before, you ta- you said you first started dabbling in Bitcoin many moons ago. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if I can say this on air, but the, the my first experience with Bitcoin, I'm, I'm sure you've heard of a site called Silk Road. Oh yes, which was uh, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, so as many uh, I guess like teenage slash college age kids, when Silk Road was around, I bought like I think I bought some weed on Silk Road. So anyways, that was my first exposure to bitcoin and it was more so like i didn't have any interest in like the bitcoin tech itself it was more like all right this site only accepts that as currency so that was my first bitcoin purchase and that was probably was when uh 2014 2015 okay and so you were how old then i was 24 so out of college actually yeah yeah and then when i was in new york i had a friend of mine who was like a really, really big crypto guy. He was like mining Bitcoin in his basement of his Williamsburg uh, apartment building. And he kept saying like, Bitcoin's the future, buy Bitcoin. I was like, man, this guy's like crazy. This guy's, this guy's, you know, like, what is this guy talking about? But eventually I think, you know, just by sheer repetition of him talking to me about crypto, I started dabbling more seriously into it in early 2017 um, when I bought Ethereum. And so as a software engineer, what really interested me about Ethereum is the ability to build like apps on top of that blockchain. Whereas Bitcoin's more of like a, you know, Bitcoin, they call it digital gold. It's just a static thing that can't do much. Yeah. Ethereum, you can actually build these like rich, cool experiences on top of it with like money as like the base layer. And I thought that was fascinating. So I kind of dove headfirst into Ethereum. And when you say you dove headfirst into Ethereum, what does that mean? We just start, did you start buying Ethereum? I started buying Ethereum and then kind of the, the second layer of the rabbit hole there is you start buying the tokens of the applications built on top of Ethereum. And it was it was pretty quick that I started developing my own uh, smart contracts on Ethereum. So basically mm. trying to write my own apps. The first one I wrote, I don't know if you're a big boxing fan, but there was the Floyd Mayweather, Conor McGregor fight. This was in August 2017. Yeah. I, I come from like a sports betting and fantasy sports background. It was like my day job. So I wrote an Ethereum smart contract that allows people to like bet money, you know, kind of wager on either side, either on, on McGregor or on Mayweather. And then, you know, once the fight happened, I would go and I would decide the winner and basically pay out whoever had, had picked the winning side. So I got pretty quickly torn to shreds on Reddit because that's called what's called a centralized Oracle. That's me making decisions about who won. So they're like, all right, we're not going to put money into this contract. We need, you know, we need this to be decentralized and have a, a non kind of uh, centralized source of truth. So I got it. I got my contract. This is actually a funny story. I got my contract to scrape from this boxing website to see who the winner would be. So it actually pull the website. So it's not you saying, oh, McGregor won or, or I mean, obviously. He exactly. Lost, it's but it's so in other words, yeah, it's 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 something that takes the human element out of it. It's just like, OK, this is the person that won. And there's a da- there's some kind of data that's telling you that. Exactly. There's an objective right. source of truth. That's not me, because technically I could, you know, declare the wrong person, the winner and run off with the money had I you know put money on the other side. Right. And that's a big kind of theme and principle in, in crypto is like centralization versus decentralized you know, not one person having the power to, to kind of change the outcome. 
So I, I built out all this tech to scrape this website. And the day before the fight, they redesigned their website and it fully, <laughs> it, it fully broke my implementation. So I had to refund everybody. That's a bummer. Did it, were there a lot of people who actually took you up on it? I think there was a few thousand dollars in the contract at its peak. Right. And everyone right, got their right. money out. So like no, no harm was done. I don't know if you read Matt Levine on Bloomberg News. He actually covered that smart contract. That was like my first foray into building apps on Ethereum. I had to refund a bunch of people on Reddit for a, a failed betting smart contract. <laughs> so that was 2017. 2017, yeah. And then obviously the reason or the... The way I found you is through this NBA Top Shots deal. You and I think it's six others spent $208,000 on this LeBron James highlight. So how do you go from or what got you to the point from doing these smart contracts over here, which didn't quite work out, to I'm going to spend a whole bunch of money on this, this highlight that I can go to YouTube right now and view? Right. So I guess you got to just go to the, the next step after I built that smart contract. At the end of 2017, Dapper Labs, which is the team that built Topshot, they built CryptoKitties, which was the first kind of... I remember CryptoKitties. And I just completely... That one came out, I was like, I just completely don't understand this at all. Yeah, many people didn't. But it, it was kind <laughs> of you know playing with these themes of digital ownership and scarcity and all these cool things. So, you know, At the surface level, it was like these cute cats kind of harmless but the actual yeah so like, for the listeners could can you explain what actually a crypto kitty is i mean it's kind of basically is what it sounds like <laughs> crypto kitties were digital cats that live on the blockchain each cat being backed by a, a virtual token that has you know its own uniqueness its own traits its own dna um you would collect these cats and you had the ability to kind of breed them together as well and mm. create offspring that would have a, a mix of the parents traits and there was a marketplace, you know, there's some cats that are extremely rare that had maybe these blue eyes that, you know, no other cat had and people, those traits made them more desirable. So there was a very vibrant marketplace at one point, you know, I think a cat sold for $100,000, but this was like a very short lived boom. It was probably, you know, three, four weeks in December, 2017, yeah. where this site was the hottest thing on Ethereum and it kind of died down after that. And so what were you doing with CryptoKitties? I initially bought a few cats and I slowly, you know, I was trying to flip them and trying to make, make little <laughs> profits here and there. Um, but I, I soon like the market really went crazy and I, I kind of got priced out of like the higher end cats. So I tried to find creative ways to make money on CryptoKitties. And uh, one of the things I found, because I was going through the code, again, coming from a software engineering background, I was looking at how they actually built this out. They were giving a reward. So once two cats bred together, they were basically incentivizing users to go and, and trigger like the child or the kitty birth from the, the pregnant mother. Cause they can't do this in an automated way on the blockchain. That's kind of like a quirk of how the technology works. People need to go yeah. manually kind of force the labor of, of the, of the, the female cat. And I've basically wrote a script or a bot that would go and, you know, scan the entire crypto kitties website, find all the pregnant mothers that were ready to, give birth to a kitty and automatically trigger the birth and get claim the reward uh, that the platform was giving people. And the reward was more uh, Ethereum. More Ethereum, correct. And that uh, my bot ran basically without competition for like a week or so and made like a, a decent amount of money. And then people came in with more sophisticated bots and it became a really crowded competitive marketplace. Right. And I, I had to abandon that. So when you say like a decent amount of money, are you talking like thousands, tens of thousands? Yeah, I think it was like low five figures, like probably in the 
10, 15K range. Right. Wow. Yeah. Amazing. And then CryptoKitties, kind of people lose interest, basically. People lose interest. There was major scaling issues with Ethereum. So for a while, actually, CryptoKitties was so popular that it basically brought the whole Ethereum network uh, to a halt. So there was, you know, the experience became really degraded because everything was really slow and expensive in terms of transaction fees. And then I think that, you know, combined with the crypto market kind of entering more of a bear bear phase and people losing interest, people have short attention spans, CryptoKitties really tailed off pretty quickly. Right. And they st- presumably they still exist out there. They do. And yeah. actually, because of the success of Top Shot recently, which I guess we'll get to, like CryptoKitties had this kind of revived interest this year <laughs> because they're seen as the original NFT project, or I guess there's CryptoPunks as well, but CryptoKitties yeah. being one of the original projects, you know, people were trying to buy them and flip them again. And I think that kind of tapered off too. Right. So you made a bit of money on CryptoKitties and that's like 2018? That was uh, end of 2017, early 2018. Right. And then how do you get to, is there another step in the chain that gets you to top shot? Yeah, there's 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 one last step. So <laughs> so following kind of CryptoKitties, I, I built the first digital sport card project on the Ethereum blockchain. So I, I built a project called Crypto Strikers, which was these uh, soccer trading cards for the 2018 FIFA World Cup in Russia. So you'd buy, sell, trade, you know, you know, Messi, Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, you'd get them in packs. It's very, very similar to Top Shot. So you'd buy packs and then there's a marketplace where you can kind of resell them. And we had some some quests of trying to collect, you know, all the players from the German team and stuff like that. But very basic experience, but it did pretty well. And presumably those are still, I mean, because once something's on the blockchain, it's always out there. So those crypto strikers are still out there in the world as well. They're still out there, correct. So you did that in 2018. And then how did you get involved with Top Shot? Because those were, that was launched, what, last year? Right. I believe. So still from the CryptoKitties days, I was on the mailing list. I think I was on Dapper's like mailing list for all their projects. And it was like two things happened at once. I got, I think, an email to old CryptoKitties users saying, hey, we're launching this new project, NBA Top Shot. Uh, we, you know, we got the NBA rights. We're building a new NFT project. And also Fred Wilson, who's like a big Silicon Valley, or I guess he's New York based, um, from Union Square Ventures, his firm uh, invested in Dapper. So he published a blog post saying, look, the NBA Top Shot beta is live. Come check it out. This is really cool. So it was still a closed beta at that point, probably like less than 500 users. And I was able to get in pretty early. And, you know, just like some people were skeptical at first of like this new project, but I knew the Dapper team from the CryptoKitties days. So I guess I was able to dive in a bit more uh, aggressively, just knowing the team, knowing that they actually had like a proper NBA license. So that's when I started dabbling back in August of 2020. Was it in February that you bought the LeBron James highlight? And how do you get to that point where you're like, you know what, this makes sense to spend $200,000 on a on a highlight, on a kind of a digital trading card, so to speak? Right. And I, I guess our, our thinking there was that, well, there's two factors, basically. One is that we had basically racked up a pretty big collection of top shots and we we're trying to consolidate, you know, I think one of our big theories is that the premium cards and the premium players will hold value in the long term. And LeBron, like, there's no one more pre- premium than LeBron. He's like, if he were to retire tomorrow, he's probably in the discussion for greatest basketball player of all time. So we were trying to basically get more exposure to LeBron James. And uh, the thinking is that if this platform, obviously, there's like a huge short-term interest in Top Shot. It's all over the news, ESPN. Prices are a little inflated. But if your theory is kind of zooming out a bit and looking more to the long term, that this is going to replace like sports cards, 
and you have the premium player, his first card on the platform, you know, that could be something that's worth a million or 10 million. I don't know what the number is in the future. So it's a, a good asymmetric bet. Basically, the downside's kind of capped. You know, it could go to zero, but it could also five, 10x. And that's a, a bet we're willing to take that, you know, this has tremendous upside. It's a premium player on like the first, you know, legit NBA NFT platform. So that's kind of the way we approached it. Right. And your roommate is Jesse Schwartz. He he kind of helped bring this group together, right? Yeah, he had been eyeing that card for a while. And then one day in, in our, we have like a little group chat of, of Top Shot collectors. He kind of texted us. He's like, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to buy it. I think it's underpriced at $208,000. As crazy as that sounds, he's like, I think it's underpriced. I think it's like a million dollar card. I'm going to buy it. Who wants uh, slices of it? And basically everyone took him up on it. Everyone, we kind of divvied up the parts. He had the the balance in his account. So he's the one who bought the card, but we all have some allocation to it. This is what's so interesting. So, and I know we discussed this when we spoke earlier this week, but I, th this idea that like, you know, if someone coming to this, like to, right now, that they're just like, well, why would you spend $200,000 on something that's not even, you know, tangible? But for you, you've spent what, 2000s, 14, 15, you know, in this world where the digital itself has value. And so I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about like how you view this, because a lot of people are like, well, you can't touch it. You can't, you, you know, it's this thing in the ether. How does that have value? I guess the thesis there is that as people, you know, we spend an increasing amount of our lives online. And I think this was a trend that was even further accelerated by COVID. Like we basically interact with our coworkers online. Everything is taking place on the internet. So yeah, there's obviously still a real world out there, but I think things can exist in and of themselves in this online space and still you don't need to touch it. You know, you have this item, you can showcase it. There's still like basic human psychology of like social proof and belonging to a group. And hey, I have this asset, no one else does. Those things still hold true, even if the asset exists strictly on the internet and not in real life. So I think that the physical aspect of it, like most people who collect, you know, people collect art, people collect trading cards, they're actually sometimes kept in like vaults where they're not even yeah. physically touching it, right? There's a company called Starstock, which does trading cards. I know the founder, Nigel, and basically you can buy, sell, trade your card, but they never leave this vault in New Hampshire. Right. So the ownership is kind of detached from the actual physical tangibility of the object it's i own this thing i don't need to be touching it basically and blockchain makes it very very clear who owns it right i mean in terms of that custody of uh that that chain of custody of whatever the digital asset is yeah that's the thing with nfts exactly and you've seen all these kind of sites spin up this is what's been really cool about top shot there's a, a rich ecosystem of developers building sites that are able to pull the data from the blockchain and give you kind of analytics or metrics on what you own, what you paid for it, what other people have in their portfolio. So everything is very, very transparent. And people can go on that site and see, okay, Jesse owns this LeBron. And it's very clear, it's not something you can fake or lie about. So that's been what, like one of the really, really interesting things is that the ownership is just public for everybody to see. What'd your parents say? <laughs> I actually, it's like, my parents are kind of used to me doing crazy stuff. I don't think they, uh, I don't think anything surprises them anymore. I know Jesse's parents, he he got obviously like a lot of the press because it was his account that bought it. And they're like, dude, you could have bought a house. You could have bought, you know, I guess people our age were, I'm 31, he's 32. A lot of our friends are settling down, starting families, buying homes. And he's out here buying, you know, a, a $208,000 trading card. But, you know, I think that's a better bet 
if you're trying to maximize your return on investment, I think it's a better bet than housing. Obviously, you, you can't live in an NFT, but the idea is that maybe <laughs> maybe maybe one day you you sell the NFT and you can get a nice house or something. But uh, yeah, I think his parents thought he was crazy. Mine were kind of just shrugged their shoulders. Right, right. And then um, what are some of the other NFTs that you're looking at or you think are interesting? Because it feels like there's this little kind of boomlet happening right now, given, you know, given the Beeple sale, given this deal on the LeBron card. It does feel like there's a lot of stuff happening right now. There is a lot of stuff. And it's actually like almost a full-time job trying to keep up with all the stuff that's happening. And it's also a full-time job trying to separate the, the you know, the wheat from the chaff and the the kind of scammy money grab projects and the actual things that I think are going are gonna to last uh, a long time. So there's one project we really like called Zed Run. It's a NFT horse racing project. So you basically, you can buy horses on the marketplace and the horses have different traits like... Digital horses. Digital horses, yeah. And they have traits such as if they prefer to run long distances or short distances or, you know, their speed versus their acceleration and what their lineage is, you know, who, who like basically uh, where, where they came from, who their parents are, what their stats were. And you could buy these horses and enter them into virtual races where you, there's like a schedule of the day of all the different races on all the different tracks. You can enter your horse a few times and then you sit back and you watch your horse race. And if he does well, uh, you know, you get some ether, basically some cash prizes, which you could then reinvest into buying more horses. So we've been looking at that project because any NFT that has utility is like really interesting because it's, then it becomes not like a static thing that you can just look at and admire. You can actually use it for, you know, in, in a cool, uh, in a cool way. So, for example, on Zed Run, so you have a digital horse. How is it determined who wins a race? Because to your point around, like, you know, the Oracle problem, obviously it's not a person doing that because that would be gameable. Right. Do you know what the kind of mechanics behind that are? So it's some, there's some degree of randomness. So I think it, it factors in the, uh, the attributes of your horse as far as his speed and his kind of preferred uh, running distance and all these things. And then based on those factors... You know, if you have like the fastest horse in the race, you're probably most likely to win, but you're not guaranteed to win. There's probably some dice roll randomness element that's like, okay, we have these eight horses. Here are their attributes. Shuffle and then decide who wins. But they have, you know, you actually get to watch the race and your horse might start off leading and then trail off. So I don't, I don't know how that's done. But yeah, I think it's a combination of the, the horse's traits and some degree of randomness. Are you worried about like the bubble bursting? Like, you know, your LeBron James card going to 10 bucks? I don't think it would get to that point. I think there's a healthy enough supply of people that would buy that dip. Just like, I, I think that we're not going to have a point in time where people are like, oh, NFTs are stupid. Well, that's what, yeah, I guess that's my point is like, so, you know, talking to a lot of people, they're like, this is a thing. This is not going away. And then people who are coming from the outside are like, this is very clearly not a thing. The market is going insane. We have all this trillions of dollars of COVID stimulus. People are just throwing money around. This is going to end badly. I, and I, I don't disagree with that, actually. So I think your <laughs> what you said about everyone being stuck at home, everyone's a day trader now. Basically, that's been, been one of the big trends this year is everyone is a speculator and a day trader. And I think NFTs are part of like a broader trend of like the financialization of everything. Everything becomes a financial asset to speculate with. So I do think like short term, maybe the prices aren't justified. Like the, you know, the NFT space has kind of gotten over its skis a tiny bit. Like it's, it's kind of outpacing where the actual 
like utility is, but they're definitely here to stay uh, in the long term. So if you're willing to kind of take maybe some short term hits in the sense of like this bubble, quote unquote bubble, might pull back a tiny bit. But if your time horizon's on a you know five, 10 year, which is what Dapper claims they're building for, they say they're building something to replace trading cards on a five, 10 year horizon with Top Shot. Right. So yeah, maybe in the short term, the LeBron goes from 200 to 75K. Right. But we, st- we still think that one, it's very tough to time these bubbles popping and then you know coming back up. And two, it's that on a long enough time horizon, we think it's something that is going to be a valuable asset. And it does feel like there's, again, there's just, there's a generational aspect to this of like, you know, I think a lot about Fortnite and people spending money on skins or like Roblox or whatever. And, you know, parents being like, why am I handing over my credit card to my kid to buy all this like stuff that's just lives in a video game? But it does feel like, especially younger generations are just like, it's that distinction between the real, the tangible and intangible has kind of gone away or, you know, it's not even a distinction so much as it's just like what's online is, has value. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you're, you're saying your kids do play Fortnite and Roblox, like how many hours a day do they spend? No, no, no. They're, they're four and two. So they're too young, <laughs> but um, I've written, I've written a lot about Fortnite over the past few years. And so it just, it, when I heard about the NFT thing, that was kind of the f- one thing I thought about was just the willingness of people to spend lots of money on basically digital costumes for their their characters for um, sure. but it's an extension of yourself right if you are a kid you know you go to school every day i guess in, in pre-covid times you actually physically go to school <laughs> and you come back home and you're, you're meeting up with your friends instead of meeting up with them at the playground or at the soccer field you're meeting up with them in Fortnite. and this is just an extension of yourself this is like you you exist in the real world you also exist in the virtual world and you kind of you know you want to have items on your you know, sp- specific guns or specific suits on your character that are an expression of yourself. And it's just, yeah, I think for kids that are, you know, 15, 16 or younger, this is just such a natural thing to them. They've like, they, they don't even think that, oh my God, this thing only exists in the, in the virtual world. This is like part of the real world too. There's no, the lines are blurred between what is virtual and what is real. Yeah. 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 That's fascinating. Um, before we go, do you want to just quickly plug what you, your company and what you do? Yeah, so uh, I'm a software engineer. I'm the co-founder of a fantasy sports startup called Hot Streak. So we're doing real-time fantasy. So traditionally, you know, fantasy sports, you draft a roster for the entire season. That was kind of the first iteration of fantasy. Uh, then DraftKings FanDuel came along. You had daily fantasy sports where you're playing for a, a given day. We let you basically create a roster for the next three minutes. So as you're watching a basketball game, you can pick, you know, will LeBron James hit a three-pointer in the next two minutes? And will Steph Curry get an assist in the next two minutes. And that's basically your roster. You you know create the entry in, in seconds on your phone, and then you put your phone down, you watch it play out on TV, and you get feedback uh, pretty pretty much instantly. So wow. that's Hot Streak. We're in, in the iOS app store. Go check it out. Cool. Well, we'll have you back on when the LeBron James card goes to a million dollars or if it goes like 50. It's probably a okay. coin flip, to be honest. So... <laughs> Think, it might, it might, you might come on, you might come on both times. You right, know, like, it might be fifty then to a million. I mean, either way, it's a good story. Whichever of those outcomes, you know, even if it goes to zero or goes to a million, it's a fun, funny story to tell our grandkids. So, indeed, indeed. Well, look, thank you for taking the time. I appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Yashan for taking the time. We crossed a few time 
zones um, to Hawaii. So glad that worked out. I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. And I also want to thank Gianni for kind of really kind of walking through the whole NFT world and kind of how he got there. I think, again, I think it's really just illuminating um, when you think about what is happening there. I think 95% of the NFT and NFT stuff will end up being garbage and being worthless or close to it. But there is a there there. Uh, as I said last week, I think it, there is something that will emerge out of this that will be quite useful and quite cool, um, especially when you think about what this could do for musicians and artists and, and you know lots of other folks, creators in general. So anyhow, I hope you guys enjoyed that. Thank you, as always, for listening, for the ratings, the reviews, the occasional tip through the Acast feature, which is just awesome it's like christmas when it's not christmas anyhow i will be writing about coinbase this weekend going public next week you know it's the biggest ipo since facebook probably uh in the world of tech so lots to talk about there and that is it you can find me at thetimes.co.uk find me on twitter at danny fortson email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk we'll talk to you next week bye-bye listening to me daisy apple's iphone disassembly robot is dismantling an iphone into lots of recyclable parts that's how apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods thanks daisy there's more to iphone okay i have two new obsessions that i need to share with you impress no glue press on manny's and impress press on falsies lashes Trust me, these are getting ready game changers. Both require no glue, so there is no damage to your natural nails and lashes, no mess, and no annoying dry times. Just one step and you're done. Boom. Instant glam. Visit impressbeauty.com slash presson and use code PRESSON25 at checkout for 25% off Impress Manicure and Press On Falsies.